The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Friday, February 14th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Houston Astros are the Donald Trump of baseball teams. Both are orange and both cheat. Donald Trump is also always banging on about rigged witch hunts and perfect phone calls and the Russia hoax. The Astros are always banging about 2-1 sliders and 3-2 curveballs. If you haven't been following the baseball scandal, the Houston Astros used cameras to steal signs from opposing catchers and relayed these signals to their hitters via a banging scheme, what was called in the official reports, the banging scheme. They'd bang on a trash can to alert hitters of what pitch was coming. Boom, boom, boom. Curveball. Boom, 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 boom. Fastball. This prompted their owner, in a bit of performative penance, to issue these two statements within moments of each other as the Astros began spring training yesterday. This didn't impact the game. And then... I I didn't say it didn't impact the game. But the fascinating Trump... Astros parallels do not end there. I mean, I mentioned the orange, right? That's the real clincher. But listen to how different media react to the Astros' day of apology. This was the post-report chatter between the reporter and the anchor of TV station KTLA, the Los Angeles station that airs Dodgers games. Earlier in the news conference, the Astros owner Jim Crane said his players should not be punished for the sign-stealing scandal. So play without integrity, <laughs> cheat, you win the trophy. We're sorry. We'd like to move then, on. Yeah, we wanna, we're going to move on. The ring, the <laughs> bonus checks. Mm. A bunch of cheaters. Yeah, and no, we're moving on. We're not going to get stuck in this. Mm. And you better move along with us. That's right. You know, we're moving stuck. along. Yeah. It's, uh, and yeah. baseball says it's okay to cheat. Yeah. You still get the trophy. Yeah. You still Just say you're the, sorry. Right. You know, it, it's baseball, too. I mean, you can't be in any sport. Baseball, All-American, apple pie. Right. It's our game, you know. And cheating. It's, and che- there you go. There you go. There you do go. I got to think, not too many people in the KTLA audience are going to fault the news team for their ire. That is the MSNBC of Astros coverage. Here's the equivalent of Fox, TV station KHOU Houston. The Astros finally responding, not with a lot of details, but with a lot of apologies and statements about moving forward. Okay, let's talk about moving forward. Are the Astros now concerned that other teams will start targeting their hitters as a form of payback? Not worried about that. I can't speak to to how guys are 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 going to handle things or what what the, the, you know that they're going to do. I'm not worried about what I can't control. What I can control is that I'm sorry about the choices that were made. And they even buttressed it with a poll. Right now, most of you are saying at 82%, yes, let's move on. What this tells me is that for all the worry that we're slipping into autocracy, which is not a ridiculous worry, for all the talk of uh, the nefarious undermining of democracy, the basic driving force with the Trump scandal and with this scandal is just human cognition, tribalism, motivated reasoning, playing to the base. Of course, it's not a perfect analogy between the presidency and baseball, because in baseball, the umpires who are tasked with meeting out punishment, well, they don't face primary challengers in November. On the show today, the South Carolina and Nevada vote. 
I put the over-under on competent processes at uh, 1.5. But first, Leon Nafak is back. In some ways, it's like he never left. The host of the TV show Slow Burn, which debuts on Epics this Sunday, the Epics Network, is here to talk about his truly excellent podcast that he does with Luminary called Fiasco. It's about the Iran-Contra affair, and while it's not a slow burn, it is lit. I hope I'm using that right. The Iran-Contra affair was a doubly disputatious scheme whereby officials in the U.S. government sold weapons to the Iranians, our enemies, who threatened violence and mayhem in their region, then took the proceeds to fund the Nicaraguan Contra rebels, our friends, who threatened violence and mayhem in the region. But that's a description of the factions. What about the people in the U.S. who were pulling this off? Or, as may have been the case, not pulling it off. Let's continue our conversation that we began yesterday with Leon Nafak, host of the Fiasco podcast, by focusing on Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. And the question is, putting aside the legality or the ethics of the undertaking, how much blame does Oliver North deserve for not running a tight enough operation? So how much the image of the season is Ali North, and he's a compelling figure, how much blame does he deserve, I don't mean morally, but for not running a tight enough operation that it didn't get found out? Like, should he have been better at concealing it? Yeah. Was he at least define his job as he would define it? I'm doing these things that we believe are morally right. Was he good at that job? Well, I mean, I guess a simple answer would be to mention the diversion memo, which is sort of how it's referred to in all the Iran-Contra books is the diversion memo. It's how it was known in the news, too. Basically, this was a piece of paper that in which North laid out to his supervisor, John Poindexter, the fact that there was an opportunity to spend Iranian weapons profits on the Contras. And it was discovered, this memo was discovered by DOJ officials who were sent in, you know, after the whole scandal broke open mm-hmm. to sort of carry out a fact-finding mission, figure out what's what so that the president is protected from saying anything untrue. And as part of that sort of brief weekend investigation overseen by Reagan's attorney general, the diversion memo was found in Oliver North's files. It was not supposed to be there. North had taken very aggressive precautions before the DOJ people came to his office to look at his papers to destroy as much physical evidence of what he'd been up to as he Uh could. Um, He was specifically worried about the diversion, any documentation of the diversion, and he took care to get rid of that stuff. And he put it through a shredder, came later to be known as the Shredding Party. The Shredding Party. Um, and and but Von, he, but Von Hall was involved. Von that, Hall, yes. yeah. Nor, That's nor, another one. When I hear the name, I'm going to be so psyched. <laughs> she, she unfortunately did not agree to be interviewed. But we did speak to the actor who played her in the movie. <laughs> That's just as important. <laughs> she was great. <laughs> That's as many levels removed as removed from Von Hall as the Ira- Iranians were from the Contras. Well, Von Hall wanted to play herself. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a rumor that, at least I should say, that, there, that Von Hall wanted to play herself. She was very cold to the actor, as the actor told me. <laughs> she, she took her part right out from under her. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Oliver North had tried to get rid of any evidence of the diversion. He seemed to have missed this one. I think oh. that's how, in fact, he put it. Uh, oh, I missed one. Wow. So that's a long answer to your question. It's like, was he good at his job? I think by that metric, he, he missed, he missed a one. necessary part of a cover-up. Yeah. yeah. He didn't um, shred what he had a shredding party and didn't shred all the things he needed to shred. Right, that's what you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> that's that said, like he was sort of put in a crazy position, having to run these two 
very complicated operations. Right. Very high level. He didn't have a lot of staff. Or training in this particular line of work. You know, he's a soldier. He doesn't, yeah. he was in over his head. And I think he knew it. In fact, there's a very like widely quoted memo that he sent to Poindexter, in which he said something about how we really got to get the CIA back in to Nicaragua because for now, like it's being run by one slightly confused Lieutenant Colonel, um, which I thought was a funny way to describe yourself when you're you, in that position. <laughs> you interviewed Bud McFarland. Yeah, we spoke yeah. to Bud McFarland. Who, and it yeah. seemed like he was not terribly too excited to be interviewed, but he acquiesced to it and he owned up in a really touching way, except if you put it up against the what his misdeeds were, but he owned up to his failings in a very forthright way, I thought. Yeah, he takes a lot of Iran-Contra on his shoulders. Bud McFarlane was the national security advisor under Reagan when that approach by the Iranian moderates via Israel came in. The John Bolton of his day. Yes, yes, yes. It's not that he was so gung-ho about this Iran weapons thing. He felt from the beginning that it was risky and that there was a high you know, probability of failure, but he was open to it being worth the risk. Mm-hmm. And so he brought it to the president and the president liked it. Yeah. Mainly because he, he saw it as an opportunity to get his hostages back, that he yeah. he really wanted the hostages back. And as McFarland says, he's not even sure how much the president gamed out the implications. Yeah. Reagan might have. Reagan was on his hospital bed when yeah, he was, he recovering was from making surgery. big decisions. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think it's, it's fair to say that, that the idea was made operational on McFarland's watch, even as McFarland, you know, had misgivings about it. And so the thing he regrets, the thing he spoke very emotionally about in our interview is that he left the White House when he did. And he left the White House at the end of 1985. And so at that point, you know, the Iran weapons initiative was a few months old. They had carried out two shipments, including the one we talked about where this sort of change in terms happened in the middle. And he had really decided firmly that this was a bad idea, that this is going to be embarrassing if it gets found out. It could, you know, it could it could just be a, a real catastrophe for this or, well. A fiasco, uh, if you will. Okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> for this administration, and we need to stop it. And so he tried to stop it. You know, he went to meet Gorbanifar in a, someone's apartment in London and said to him, yeah. no more weapons until the hostages You're are trying released. Trying to talk Gorbanifar out of weapons deals <laughs> is like trying to talk Garfield out of lasagna, if you know what I'm saying. And so he kind of made this sort of gesture towards stopping the operation before leaving the White House. But as he told me, like, he should have known that the president was going to stay with it, that there would be no one around if he left to stop this instinct of his. And he, I think, localizes his regret to that moment, that decision to leave when he did. As I reflected on what he said and how he said it and how he talked about when you do your job well and that's your job, you're essentially just a footnote to history. There seemed to be a lot of regret and shame. And then when you contrast that with how Oliver North acted, which is as a martyr, and then his martyrdom was confirmed by a nation right-wing media apparatus, it says to me something about the tactic of having shame and being shameless in terms of uh, going forward in America or at least Washington. I guess what I would say is I don't think either of those guys are employing a tactic. Like just as I believe in Bud McFarlane's sincere remorse and inner conflict over this, I also believe in Oliver North's certitude. I think he kind of was a supernova, like when he testified in front of Congress, he was instantly kind of this folk hero to the right. And he, you know, he ended up getting a career out of it. You know, he he was still on Fox News sometimes as a commentator. He was the president of the NRA. 
But I got to say, like, part of the reason we haven't remembered Iran-Contra as well as we, we maybe we remembered Watergate is that I just don't think he actually has a lasting... He lacks complexity in a way. Mm-hmm. I think he's not... I'm not surprised in a way that we got sick of him, that he didn't, you know, remain part of the sort of fabric of our shared, you know, knowledge. Right. And it doesn't attach itself as much to Reagan, who was checked out and disinterested. And, like, the scandal was that he let it all happen underneath him, whereas opposed to the Clinton scandal and the recount and the Nixon scandal, although that was maybe a little bit more of a gray area, how much does the scandal accrue to Reagan? It accrues to his lack of attention rather than his, you know, nefarious intent. Well, what's weird is that no one disputes that Reagan was fully aware of both operations, the weapons sales to Iran in exchange for hostages and the effort to fund the Contras illegally by avoiding the Bowen Amendment. The thing that they couldn't prove he knew about was the diversion, the use of funds from one thing to pay for the other. It's, I find it puzzling, and it's something we've tried to kind of figure out in, in writing the show. It's like, why did everyone's attention immediately just go to the hyphen? Why did everyone so, suddenly decide that all that matters is whether Reagan approved the use of the Iran funds to pay for the Contras? Isn't it enough to know that he was you know, fully read into both operations separately. Yeah. Um, He approved two things that are themselves scandal. The fact that they were funded via each other is not the major scandal here. Yeah. And so in the end, though, because that became the question, when John Poindexter testified before Congress and said that I didn't tell him about the diversion. Yeah. North told me about the idea. I approved it. I didn't tell him. I didn't tell him on purpose because I wanted to give him deniability. And that is what I've given him. And so once he said that, it was kind of over, obviously not for the independent counsel's office, which continued into 1993, kind of like the air went out of it. And, you know, as soon as you couldn't put it on Reagan's Reagan's feet, like it was almost like the interest just died down. So I assume you tried to interview Ollie North. Yes, he said no. Would if you had to ask him anything, what would you ask him? This is the thing. Like, he's not that complicated. I don't know. At the end of the day, I I don't find him to be like the compelling central figure in this story. Mm -hmm. Like to me, it's McFarlane. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like I'm sorry to say, like he he's a little bit of a cartoon, you know. And maybe I'm wrong. Like if I met him, I'd I'd see all these complexities to his personality and his and his way of thinking. But like I don't think he would even be offended by me saying that he's really kind of straightforward. Like he has his beliefs. Like we were supposed to beat the communists, and he had his credo that he was going to do what his superiors told him to. You know, I think it might be as simple as that. Yeah. So um, I was going to ask you, who would you rather interview, Ollie North or Monica Lewinsky? The answer seems clear. Yeah, for sure. Anyone, who else of all the seasons <laughs> that you've done? Who's after Monica as the get that you couldn't get? Who's I mean, alive? Yeah, it would have been great to talk to George W. Bush and Al Gore. I ended up coming around to the idea that we were kind of lucky that Lewinsky said no to us, that we like had to work that much harder to make the show you know, good yeah, and, and, yeah. and accurate. And I think that helped us. I think with the 2000 election. Well, and also that at the the last episode of that one, the conclusions, I mean, if she came in and said, well, this is what you sh- should think about it, it would be very hard for you to work out those yep. conclusions without just defaulting to, well, how yep. could we not just take her opinion on this? Yeah, that's right. I think with the 2000 election, you know, it's a really l- sort of legalistic story by necessity. Like it was, I kind of came to think of it as like a series of legal puzzles. Yeah. And obviously there's a lot of emotion attached to that because you can talk to lawyers who mm-hmm. are fight these battles and win these puzzles or solve these puzzles. But I think talking to like the guys who were going to either win or lose and put their emotional like state as a subplot in every episode is with the 2000 election, like we just kept zooming from one courtroom to another. And if we could have in addition to that, and here's how I felt. Yes. My name is Al Gore. That would have been good. Oh. 
<laughs> um, the show was called Slow Burn when it was here at Slate. It's still, Slow Burn exists. Then it was called Fiasco. But your production company is Prologue Projects. And to me, that that tells, that explains the appeal. I mean, it's execution, but that gets at what makes a Leon Nafak slow burn, at least. How was the past prologue in the Iran-Contra affair? As far as what I kind of came to believe as we were absorbing the story and writing our version of it, what it makes me most sort of sensitive to in a way that I wasn't before is how the institutions of our government interact with private actors who are not part of the government. And I think this is something that happens a lot in Iran-Contra. Like, they needed a middleman to be the... Episode one about those guys on Long Island. <laughs> yeah, amazing. episode one's about yeah. these guys on Long Island who were sort of, like, brought into the Grenada invasion by Oliver North, despite being, like, just some guys from Long Island. From, if that. From ba- from Bayshore, <laughs> yeah. not Bayshore, as Mike, as Mike helpfully Bayshore. told me. <laughs> yeah. You know, that sort of happened on different levels throughout Iran-Contra because they needed these sort of cutouts to do stuff that they weren't supposed to be doing. And I think as you, you know, observe the sort of innards of the Ukraine scandal, you see the exact same thing, right? You, you have the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, kind of doing things that the State Department won't do. You have his pals, Lev Parnas and Fruman, who are even one step removed yet so that, you know, when their pictures come out, Trump can say, I've never met these guys. I feel like those are two particularly, like, eye-popping examples of, of private actors being sort of deployed by the government with the power of the government behind them. But I bet it happens all the time and in ways that aren't as, like, clear-cut. Yeah, uh, and maybe it, with, and with guys that aren't so colorful. Yeah, and, and, with, and maybe even with outcomes that aren't as bad. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of government power that I hadn't really thought about before this. You also have uh, lieutenant colonels tasked to the executive branch who wind up losing their jobs. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, TV show? There's a slow burn TV show? Uh, there's a slow burn TV show. Are yeah. you in it? I am. Who uh, are you? Who do you play? <laughs> Alderman? <laughs> I get to play myself. I'm the narrator and you even see see me on camera for the first minute and a half or so of every episode. Uh-huh. And do you wear the same shirt every time? I do. Same blazer. Um, uh-huh. I'm going to guess no tie. No tie. Um, but yeah, it, it has that vibe. <laughs> yeah, here's his Leon. Well, like, do you walk towards the camera? No, I just, no? I'm just standing there recording a podcast. Yeah, and so then the camera moves to a 70s style living room that the producers created explicitly for this. Uh-huh. There's no one in it, but there it's full of like totemic objects. Oh, uh, I see. So there's a, a television where you see John Chancellor on NBC News reporting Smart. the evening news. You have you know bookshelves where you see Howard Hunt's spy novels. You have uh, a coffee table with like the day's newspaper. You know that yeah. that, that you sometimes you will hear me in the narration say like you know the washington post reported that this and this on this day and it'll zoom in on that edition of the paper and take you to the rest of the story oh, as a awesome. portal do they do any uh, reenactments uh no reenactments there's okay. some animation but but no reenactments. animation yeah that's good uh that's yeah it's exciting. coming out coming out on february 16th on the epics network but do they mean to like convince viewers that podcasting existed in the 70s no, uh-huh. I'm not in the room. The 70s style room is where America saw Watergate unfold gotcha. from. Were you? Did you ever visit the set? Yeah. Yeah? How, where is it? I believe it was in Montclair. Is it nicer than your actual living room? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, this is like a house that the people use for, for shoots all the time because it's so distinctively 70s. Oh, it's the 70s They had, a, they had an indoor pool in the house. Wow. Yeah. Didn't Nixon turn that into the uh, press room? <laughs> or was that the bowling alley? I think it was the pool. Yeah, I don't Nixon remember. Turned that. Yeah. <laughs> Leon Afak is the host of Fiasco, the second season of which is available on that luminary service. It's about the Iran-Contra affair. Thank you so much, Leon. Thanks, Mike.
And now the spiel. We are now in the longest stretch of non-voting within the Democratic primary process until April. There's a week, I think, between April 7th and maybe April 21st. So let's enjoy the interregnum. And also, happy Valentine's Day. Fun fact, a baby conceived today will have a due date of three days after the presidential election. I'm not sure how this will affect the birthing plan. A Donald Trump re-election might exacerbate labor pains or... Looked at another way, a perfect little bundle of joy could be just the thing to help heal the wounds of a Trump re-election. Though it will be harder if your midwife jumps off a six-story building three days prior. Then again, a Donald Trump defeat, and you can name the baby Amy K. Or if you had a really active pregnancy with a lot of care and nurturing and attention spent on the baby, but then the baby came out and it's kind of a disappointment who everyone ignores, you could name your baby Robert Mueller IV. The next vote, the next primary vote, not caucus, primary, will be in South Carolina, where Joe Biden's once huge lead among the African-American population is evaporating. And guess who's gaining? Maybe not who you think. He wears a Scotch guard tie. According to the New York Times, a Fox poll in January found Tom Steyer's support in South Carolina increasing to 15%, putting him in second place behind Mr. Biden. Jalen Elrod, a vice chair of the Greenville County Democratic Party, who also endorsed Mr. Buttigieg on Wednesday, said that in the last month he had changed his characterization of Mr. Biden from, quote, a strong front runner to a weak front runner with his decline being compounded by the rise of Tom Steyer. Elrod said, quote, I was in the barber shop and everyone was like, I'm kind of interested in this Tom Steyer guy. He seems pretty cool. Jalen Elrod, thereby ruining for me the entire idea of the barber shop. A barber shop? where they're saying Tom Steyer is a pretty cool guy? That is no barbershop that I know of. What happened to barbershops? And what happened to caucuses? I know the Iowa caucus now enjoys the same kind of reputation that Jack in the Box did in the mid-90s, or the Ford Pinto does to this day. But shouldn't we be questioning all caucuses? Caucai, perhaps caucai? Whereby groups of people see each other vote in time-consuming traipsings around in local gymnasia, ballots, voting booths, closed curtains. No, forget that. Let's go with Red Rover at center court. Nevada has introduced safeguards into their vote-counting system, and they won't be using the app that was used in Iowa, the Shadow app. They also decided not to go with the app's name Sleeper Cell or False Flag. Good choice. They're still a little worried, though. This report from News 3 Las Vegas. Nevada Democratic Party wants to make sure that what happened in Iowa stays in Iowa, the debacle with their caucus. Our caucus begins as early as tomorrow with early voting. And our Faye Jesse joins us live with how they plan to make sure that we don't have a debacle in our state. Because a caucus debacle can cause a modest boondoggle. (laughs) Sorry, Nevada, all debauchery, but no debacle. Here's the thing, though, Nevada. Your caucus isn't on shaky ground because of the app that counts the results of the caucus. It's on shaky ground because it is a caucus. Counting a caucus incorrectly is like applying the wrong type of leech for your ailment. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait, 
Leeches actually have been shown to work in some limited and specific ways. Yes, just like caucuses. However, there is a wrinkle to the Nevada caucus. It's early voting. So this game of Red Rover or Ring Alivio with half the participants able to tell the organizers what they're going to do beforehand. But what early voting plus a caucus whereby you change choices or might have to change choices, what this really represents is a kind of ranked choice voting. In fact, it's not going to be the most people who are involved in ranked choice voting. It's used in Maine. But this could be the example of ranked choice voting or a version, a weird kind of version thereof that has the most impact in U.S. elections. I like ranked choice voting. It is an excellent experiment in democracy. I just don't know if the Nevada organizers are going to be able to handle it. And I say that because when you think about what has to happen, here's what will go down. So they'll get all the results from the early voting period. Those will be tabulated and I hope accurate and ready to go. That shouldn't be too hard. Maybe, but it shouldn't be. But then there's the moment when all the residents who want to caucus in person show up. Okay, so then you have to add the number of people who show up to the number of people who told you beforehand who they want to vote for. And then you establish your thresholds for viability. And then you tell everyone in the room, okay, you guys over there in the, I don't know, Tom Steyer camp, you're not viable, you go elsewhere. But then you got to look at all the early voting results and you got to see who voted for Tom Steyer. Who did that person vote for second? Who did that person vote for third? Maybe there's others in the caucus who aren't viable. You've got to do that for all the people. You've got to not skip a step. You've got to not go to their third choice when we're really on their second choice or do go to their third choice if their second choice isn't viable. Early voters can rank up to five choices. This is not impossible, but it does have a lot of moving parts. It's never been done before, and there is math involved. Americans, from what I've seen, aren't good at math. There was a candidate whose campaign slogan was math. He's, he's out now. You know what would be really useful in a situation like this? An app. Granted, it would have to be an app that worked. Yeah, I mean, you don't want the app that doesn't work, with most things, I would say. But an app could give... Uh, the 78-year-old person running the caucus site, a little assistance, I'm just saying. But you know what would be really, really useful? To cut through all of this craziness? No more caucuses. Just a vote, hopefully with the option of an early vote. Maybe ideally with an early vote that included ranked choices. And I must be dreaming here, an early vote with ranked choices that could be processed via reliable technology and also with a secure backup? I know it's too much to ask. Let's just go with our lower threshold of debacle avoidance. And also, happy Valentine's Day. Should a child result from whatever happens tonight, may that child be born into a world of ranked choices, which is a contrast with the current very, very ranked choice we're being offered today. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She worked alone today, manned, womaned the office alone, but Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, was whispering in her ear off screen, search your feelings, go the distance. No, edit there, edit there. The GIST, Nevada, known for their topless brothels, not their caucus debacles. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>